All right, I want everybody to uh, look up here and smile, okay? We'll see how this works. Okay, all right, keep smiling. Keep the panoramic level, okay? It's gonna be a wobbly picture, here we go. All right, now, if I send that to Nikki, our social media coordinator, and she posts that this week, and you go online and look at it, what is the very first thing you're going to look for? Yourself, that's right, yeah, universal human phenomenon. Uh, maybe you've done this before. You've sat down with some friends or family and you've taken out some old pictures and you've looked at it. I, I guarantee, inevitably, the very first reaction to each picture is something like, oh my gosh, look at my hair, or I can't believe I thought that shirt looked good, or I was a lot skinnier back then. Uh, it's what we do, right? You show someone a picture, the first thing they look for is themselves. It doesn't always mean you like what you see, you know, you may hate your smile or, uh, you know, you think your eyes are too far apart or there's that birthmark that always bugs you or whatever. But whether you feel like you need to apologize for ruining the picture or you think that you single-handedly saved the shot from being a fashion disaster, the point is the same. You look at yourself. You are the focus of the picture. Uh, even if you know that other people aren't really sort of paying that close of attention to what you look like, for you, in your heart, you are the subject of that photo. You are at the focus. We do this not just with pictures, right? This is how we live our lives, most of us. We are at the center. Even religious people, even spiritual people tend to do this. Uh, there are lots of people who believe in God. Most people actually do. Uh, most people that I meet are interested in some kind of spirituality. They want a relationship with God. They want God involved in their life. The problem, though, is how most people want that relationship to work. They, they think of God as sort of a, a part of their life, sort of an aspect of a well-rounded life. You know, they want a little bit of religion kind of alongside of working out and cutting carbs from your diet and getting your kids in swim lessons and saving for retirement. It's just sort of one aspect of a, a life plan to help you sort of thrive as a human being. And, and it's true. I mean, having God in your life is a real benefit. You know, you're feeling down. You can go to God for some comfort. You're in a tough situation. You can ask for some help. Uh, you want to get some moral guidance, some, some grounding to help make you a better person, he's there for that too. He inspires you to reach for your goals. And all of that is true, but you should notice how it's framed. It's all about fitting God into your life rather than you fitting in to God's life, figuring out what he's doing and joining that. You've got all of these hopes and goals for yourself, and so you're enlisting God to help you meet them. He's there to support you, to improve you. He's the great life coach in the sky. He's still in the photo, but when we look at the picture, we see ourselves as the focus. For some of you, you would say, you know what? I really do want God to be the focus of my life. I want him to be the center here. And it may be at some point for some of you, that was true. You felt like he was at the center, but for whatever reason now in your life, you're kind of drifting. You've gotten far away. You don't know exactly how it happened, but you look back in the past and you feel like you were much closer to God before than you are now. Some of you are at the point where you have drifted so far that you are almost thinking about, is this worth it? Should I keep doing this whole Jesus thing? Am I ready to walk away? That is the situation that the audience of the book of Hebrews was in. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It's towards the end of the Bible. So the easiest way to find it is to actually start at the back cover and flip forward a few books, and you should find the book of Hebrews. We're going to start at the very beginning in chapter 1. Now, Hebrews is a letter that was written to a group of early followers of Jesus, 
And they had gotten focused on the wrong things. And as a result, they were drifting away from Jesus. They had gotten to the point of asking the question, is this really worth it? Are there other ways to approach God that are better than Jesus? And so the author of the book, and we don't actually know who the author was. This is the one anonymous book we've got in the New Testament. Uh, The author of the book is writing to this group of Christians that he loves. He was probably a leader in their community at some point, and he's trying to tell them that Jesus is incredible. He he wants to convince them that that he is so amazing, so wonderful, you would never want to leave him. And he's trying to warn them about what would happen if they did walk away from Jesus. And to do that, he is presenting a, a number of different pictures of Jesus to get at these different angles of why Jesus is so perfect. And that's the reason why we're calling this series we're starting today, Picture Perfect. For the next seven weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be looking at seven different pictures of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And we're doing that to try to keep Jesus at the center, not just of this season, but also of our lives. So the first picture we're going to look at of Jesus is found right here in the first few verses of Hebrews. So let's read those together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We're just going to be looking at these three verses today, but they are packed. I know that sometimes when I read passages like this that are just so, so dense like this, if I read them too fast, it can just go right over my head, these big lofty things. And what I really need to do is kind of go through it phrase by phrase. It's sort of like a, a piece of rich fudge, you know, the, the best way to do it is to just take a nibble and savor each bite. So that's what we're going to try to do today. Let's look again at the start of the the passage here where it says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Here's what we learned from these verses. Jesus is the perfect picture. We'll talk about what he's a picture of in a moment. But the first thing I want you to get is that Jesus is the perfect picture. In these verses, there's a contrast being made between all of the communication that God did before Jesus showed up and what happened when Jesus finally did show up. From the very beginning of human history, God has been speaking. That's one of the most incredible things about God. He he wants us to know about him. He wants us to understand him, what he wants and what he is like. He doesn't want us to be in the dark and guessing about that. And so to be in a relationship with us, he communicates what he is like. And what we have in our Bibles is a collection of all of that communication. We've got it all gathered there. And that's the reason we call this book God's Word. It's his personal message to us. And the first half of the book, really the, the first three quarters of the Bible, are what we call the Old Testament. It's all of the things that God communicated before Jesus came. And that's what's being referred to in this verse when it says that God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. That's talking about the Old Testament. And you'll notice that in the verse, it says that in the Old Testament, God spoke at many times and in various ways. And it's true. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see God spoke in all sorts of different ways. Spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through a storm cloud on a mountain. He spoke in dreams and visions. Sometimes he sent angels as messengers. One time he even spoke through a talking donkey. It's a long story for another time. Um, 
but it's, it, it's all of these different various ways God communicated what he wanted and who he was. And everything that he said was true. All of the Old Testament is real, accurate communication from God. But it's incomplete. It's fragmentary. It isn't finished. A couple of months ago, my mom was cleaning out her attic and she found a, a box of old stuff that I had saved from my childhood for, for memory. And it contained all sorts of stuff. There were the kinds of things you might expect, like uh, old photographs and report cards, some uh, drawings that I'd done, a picture like this of me as a child. I have no explanation of what's going on there. But lots of stuff that, like that was in the box. There was a, a large pink stuffed raccoon, a bag of baby teeth. That was kind of gross. There were like six or seven time capsules. Apparently, as a child, I was obsessed with writing letters to my future self. Um, and, and as a word of advice, if you are thinking of taking your old wrestling shoes and knee pads and putting them in a box for over a decade, don't, okay? That's not something you want to smell or touch ever again. Now, if I handed you that box of all of my stuff from my childhood and I let you look through it on your own, it would probably be a little bit confusing, don't you think? You know, you'd wonder who are these people in this photo and why did he think this was important to save or that was important to remember? How are all of these things connected? You'd probably laugh at some of the old and outdated things that were, going, that, that were in the box. You know, I found a, an old floppy disk that I have no computer that has a drive for uh, and I can't access it anymore. You would be forming a mental picture of what I was like. You know, you'd be figuring out uh, what I liked, what I disliked, what I had been involved in. And some things would be clear. You, you would get a, an accurate picture, but there would be other things where it would leave you with questions. Now, what would happen if I showed up after you looked through that box and I started looking at it with you? And I started to explain the, the significance of the things that seemed odd. You know, I'd be able to make connections between things that seemed unrelated and give the backstory that you were missing. And you'd start to get a better understanding, not just of what was in the box, but also of who I am. Uh, not just because I explained what was in the box, but because you personally interacted with me in the flesh present with you. That's what happens with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is kind of like that, isn't it? You read it and some parts of it are, are confusing. Some of it is clear and inspiring and good. And in other parts of it, you say, what's going on here? Why, why is this so important? But when Jesus showed up, what he did was he made sense out of all of that. He, he didn't toss aside the Old Testament. He didn't say, well, you don't need that anymore. In fact, he did the opposite. He elevated it and he said, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to complete this. But he, what he did was take all of the different pieces of the Old Testament and he put the puzzle together. He drew all the threads and wove a tapestry. In, in other words, when you read the Old Testament, everything you read there is true, but none of it is final. Everything you read is like an arrow. It's pointing to something greater and better, the ultimate message of God, Jesus. So as you read the Old Testament, as after you have figured out what the author was trying to say to the original audience, one of the things you need to do is trace the themes and the ideas that came up in that passage and find out how they point to Jesus, how Jesus fulfills those things. We're going to see that a lot in this series. The, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, so they had spent all of their lives studying the Old Testament, and it really, really mattered to them how Jesus was connected to all of that. And so the author keeps uh, taking these Old Testament images, things like the temple and the priests and the sacrifice and the Sabbath, things that you and I might find a little hard to understand, and he starts explaining how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of these things. So our hope over the course of this series is that not only do you get a better picture of Jesus as we do this, but you also get a better understanding of the Old Testament, which sometimes can be a challenge for us. Jesus is the perfect picture 
that brings clarity to everything that came before. And as we look at that picture, a few things become very obvious. The first is this. Jesus is the perfect picture of how the world really works. He's the perfect picture of how the world really works. Have you ever seen pictures from behind the scenes at a movie? You know, before all of the uh, touch-ups been done or the computer graphics have been added? You know, while you're watching the movie, you see something like this, Superman soaring through the sky. But when you see behind the scenes, you actually see this, two dudes in green bodysuits wiggling Superman's cape. This <laughs> just kills me. I just love that. <laughs> Magic of superheroes. Um, we live in a world full of fake images. Uh, all of the, the movies you see have computer graphics. Everyone in magazines is photoshopped. Even your friend's Instagram posts. You know, they took like 50 shots of that one plate to get it perfect. And they cropped out the mess and they ran it through a filter. And then they posted it. Everything is edited. Everything is, is, is fake. And after a while, in a world of images like that, you start to ask the question, what's actually real? What, what can I trust here? And it's not just photos, you know, it's you look at the world and you say, what, what's actually going on? I, I, I see the news, I see this, I, I see that happening. What is actually like working here? How does this whole work? If I, if I pulled back the curtain, if I could look behind the scenes of the universe, what would I actually see? Look again at verse two. It says, Jesus is the one whom God appointed heir of all things. Uh, my grandparents had eight kids and 25 grandkids and no money. So there wasn't much inheritance to split up when they passed away. But they did have a house full of stuff. You know, some of it was junk that we got rid of, but a lot of it was really meaningful, things that we wanted to save. And so to divide it up, what my grandmother did before she died was she had all of the aunts and uncles come to her house and they took stickers and they put it on the bottom of the, the different, you know, knickknacks and mementos and things they wanted to save. And they wrote their name on the sticker. Maybe some of you have done this. And so th then when my, my grandmother did die and we went to the house and we, you know, unloaded all the stuff, it was easy for us to just look at the bottom of something and see who was supposed to take that home. Here's what this verse means. This verse means that at the end of time, when the riches of the universe are being divided up, when all is said and done, the name on the bottom of every object in the universe is going to be Jesus Christ. He owns it all. It belongs to him. He is the heir of all things. And why is that? Why does Jesus have rights to it all? Well, there's a number of reasons, but on the top of the list is what we find in the next phrase in verse 2. Through Jesus, also God made the universe. The reason Jesus is the rightful owner of all things is because he's the creator of all things. He's the one who brought the universe into existence. He was there at the beginning and he made the world. But it's not just that he created all things. If you look a little further down in verse 3, it says that Jesus is currently sustaining all things by his powerful word. He sustains all things by his powerful word. I want everybody here to just take a deep breath. Let it out. Feels good. Let's do it again. All right, now feel your pulse. Feel your heart beating. Who decided that you would get another breath? Who gave permission to your heart to beat one more time? Jesus did. 
At every moment, Jesus is sustaining your life and my life. He's the one who keeps your neurons firing and your cells synthesizing proteins. He's the one who keeps every atom in your body from exploding. He's the one who keeps the the reaction of of hydrogen into helium at the core of the sun uh, burning so that it fuels all life on the planet. He's the one who upholds every star and nebula and galaxy in the universe. He sustains all of it. As modern people, it's easy for us to think about the world as a world like a machine, a system that's run by laws and rules that always work, you know? Gravity always pulls you down. Two plus two always equals four. And on the one day you have to sleep in, your child will always wake up at 5 a.m. <laughs> Can't be broken. The universe runs on laws. And we don't know all of them, but we're pretty sure that they're there. But here's the question. What ensures that the laws are consistent? What ensures that there are laws at all? What actually sustains the laws? What ensures that the world's going to be here tomorrow or in the next instant? Why do things continue to exist? Because Jesus says so. He didn't just wind up the universe and let it go. At every moment, Jesus is saying, yes, I want this. I want this to continue. Let's keep these things going. I want this world here. I still delight in it. It's only by Jesus' pleasure that we continue to exist. Every moment he says, yes, I love this world. I want it here. I will sustain it. I will keep it in existence. If Jesus no longer delighted in the world, we would no longer be here. And when you think about this, when you imagine him upholding the world, you shouldn't think of it as something difficult for him. He's not Atlas straining under the weight of the world. It says in the verse, look, he sustains all things with his powerful word. Just a word. Uh, The average person speaks 16,000 words a day. We we do it without even thinking. Uh, For Jesus, trying to uh, uphold the universe is as easy for him as you rattling off your order at Starbucks. Just effortlessly. Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the heir of all things. The universe is owned and operated by him. And so if you really want to understand how the world works, you've got to know Jesus. Jesus is the perfect picture of how the world really works. But that's not all. Jesus also shows us something in verse three. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the perfect picture of what God is really like. What does it mean for Jesus to be the radiance of God's glory? Uh, The idea of glory is this. It's the outward manifestation, the outward expression of all that God is in himself. It's, 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 it's that image of light. So think of radiance, this word here. It's the image of light coming out from a source. So the glory of God is like uh, the, the, the light coming from the sun. Uh, the sun is this massive, powerful, ongoing nuclear reaction. And the outward manifestation of that reaction is the light that we see. Uh, light is the way that we encounter the sun. It's, it's how we know what's going on there, what it's like. We do that through the light. How do we see God? How do we know what God is like? We do that through Jesus, the radiance of God's glory. The the inner life of God, the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is this ongoing, massive, powerful experience of life and light and love. And Jesus is the outward expression of that life. He, He is the explosion from the ongoing nuclear reaction at the heart of God. And it's important as we talk about this, when we say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, we're not saying that Jesus is separate from God, like he's a different thing from God. That would be like trying to separate the sunlight from the sun. 
Instead, we want to say that Jesus is one with God. And the, the next phrase in verse 3 makes that very clear, that he is the exact representation of God's being. The image that you should have in your mind is, is one of wax being poured into a mold. It takes the exact shape, the exact form of the mold that, that uh, was imprinted onto the wax. The wax comes out in an identical shape to the thing that formed the mold. It's the perfect representation of the original. So Jesus doesn't give us just information about God. He doesn't just give us messages from God. He actually makes God present to us. He is actually God with us. So that when you encounter Jesus, you encounter God. Now I want to stop here because some of you have been around church a while and you, you know, you know, Jesus is God. That's sort of like, you know, big E on the eye chart for Christians, right? But sometimes we can let that pass a little bit too quickly. And you can't just say, you know what, this man right here, this specific human being was God and not react to that. I mean, think about it. The entire Christian faith rests on this claim that a Jewish construction worker from a small town in first century Palestine is the ultimate power behind the universe. That is absurd, okay? It, you, can't, you can't not react to that. If it's not true, it is insane to say that. And yet, that's what Jesus said about himself. In John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. He thought that he was God. And the religious people in his day, they understood the significance of that statement. They, they understood that, uh, they didn't think it was true, but they understood if someone actually believed that about themselves, at the very minimum, that person was dangerous and probably they were evil. And so they did the only sensible thing they could think of, which was, we got to arrest this guy, put him to death. They understood what was at stake in a claim like that. Do you? I like how the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He asks this question. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. For most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. He's right. If this is who Jesus is, you cannot keep treating him like a personal assistant. Someone like that does not exist to enrich your life. He exists to run your life. But some of you are, are living in that shallow in-between world where you respect Jesus, he inspires you, you like him, but you won't really bow down to him. But I'll tell you, that is not really an honest option. The only options we are given are to either fully reject Jesus or to fall down on our faces and worship him. You cannot stay on the fence. Of course, if you decide that it's true, that Jesus actually is God, it opens up a whole host of other questions. Uh, for one, how can you relate to someone like that, you know? I, I think about uh, the story of Moses. Moses said, I want to see your glory, God. And God said, yeah, I can't show you that. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll pass by you and, and I'll let you see sort of the afterglow of my glory because if I, I just showed myself to you, you would die. Or I think about the prophet Isaiah. He had this vision of God's throne and he, and he sees it and he falls down. The thing that comes out of his mouth is, woe is me, I am ruined. I am undone. Or I think about John, the apostle John. He is Jesus' best friend in life, the person who was the closest to him while he was here on earth. 
John, later in his life, is given a vision of Jesus in heaven. And it says that he fell down on his face as a dead man. How can finite people be in a relationship with the one who holds the universe with a word? How can people so full of guilt and shame be in the presence of one who is the radiance of God's glory? How, how can that be possible? More than that, if you decide that Jesus is God, you've got to ask the question, is that good news? Do, do I like that? If he's the one on the throne, does that make me happy? Because if he isn't good, then it's terrifying for Jesus to have all of that power. If he's going to choose who lives and who dies, he better be someone you can trust. If Jesus is God, if God is like Jesus and Jesus turns out to be a jerk, what does that say about God? Is this good news? This is where we get to our final point. Jesus is not only the perfect picture of how the world works or what God is like, but he also shows us why that is really good news. Look again at the end of verse 3. It says, After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is so crucial. This one phrase here makes all the difference in the world. After he had provided purification for sins... We're going to talk a lot about this in upcoming weeks because Hebrew has a lot, Hebrews has a lot to say about this idea. But let me just give you the basic outline of what this means. The, the Bible has a word for the fundamental problem of humanity and the world, and that word is sin. Sin is a complex concept, so the Bible uses a lot of different images to get at what it means. And one of the pictures that it gives is as a kind of spiritual pollution Sin poisons our souls. It makes our relationships toxic. It, it contaminates the vitality and the beauty of the world around us. And, and worst of all, it makes us unclean before God. Uh, our sin is like a rancid smell in God's nose. It, it turns his stomach. And, and we don't usually think of ourselves as that bad, but that's usually because we're comparing ourselves to other sinners. If you smell like eggs and the other people around you smell like eggs, pretty soon you just sort of acclimate to the stink. But in comparison with the holiness and glory of God, there's no hiding it. No deodorant, no perfume is enough to cover the stench. If we are going to draw near to a holy God, we need to be washed. We need to be purified. And according to this verse, that's exactly what Jesus did. The Son of God stepped out of heaven right into our mess. In order to make us clean, Jesus had to become dirty the, the glory of God became the scum of the earth. Jesus took our shame on himself so that he could take it away. That's what happened on the cross. He, he, Jesus was treated like a disgusting piece of trash and dragged outside the city and thrown away. He, he experienced the exclusion from God uh, that, that you and I deserve. And when he did that, he took our impurity on himself and he took it away with him, leaving us clean. What that means is we are now pure enough to enter into the presence of God. We can actually see the glory of God now. And more than that, we can actually share in the glory of God. Jesus became unclean like us so that we can become glorious like him. It's incredible. It's why we call it the good news, the gospel. And here's what this means. It means that the ultimate power behind the universe is good. He's kind. He's merciful. And I know this can be really hard to absorb sometimes. I mean, how can you say that the one who runs the world is good when the world is so full of suffering? 
How can you say someone is running this world that is good and they allow hundreds of people to die in terrorist attacks? How can this be a good world when children are hit by drunk drivers? When financial troubles strain your marriage to the point of breaking? When someone you love is dying slowly and in agony? How can you say that the one running the show is good? In most cases, it is impossible for us to find an answer to the why questions about things like this. We're just not given information about the reasoning behind why God allows these sorts of things to happen. We're just not told. In most cases, you cannot find a bigger picture or a silver lining to make sense out of it. But here's what we can know. If Jesus is the one in charge, if he is calling the shots, then the one on the throne has personally experienced pain. Jesus knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows what it's like to lose everything. He he knows what it's like to cry out for help and hear no answer. He has experienced it firsthand. Jesus uh, may allow the suffering and evil in the world, but what he does is he doesn't look down on all of that suffering and evil and say, good luck, everybody. Try to figure that one out. I hope you get through it. He doesn't just look on us with pity while he enjoys the pleasures of heaven. Instead, he steps down into the world and says, let me take the worst of it. Let me experience the most of evil and suffering in the world. Let me suffer the most of anyone. So we don't know why God allows evil in the world, but we do know he hasn't exempted himself from experiencing it. So if Jesus is in charge, it means that the one who made it all is not above it all. The one who runs the world has been run over by the world. The one who holds our lives in his hand has laid down his life for us. If Jesus is the perfect expression of who God is, that means God is love and you can trust him. If Jesus is running the world, this is very good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow before you as the one who is the creator and the sustainer and the heir of all things. It all belongs to you. It is all yours and for your glory. You are at the center of the picture. You are the focus. And so we want to give you the honor that you deserve, Jesus. God, it amazes us that you would step down into our world to take on our sin, our impurity, our, our, our sickness, our death, so that you could take it away, that, so that we could have hope. God, we, we think about the suffering of our world. We think about the people in Paris. We want to lift them up to you. God, we pray for uh, the people who have lost friends and family and loved ones. We pray that you would bring them comfort and hope that they would ultimately find hope in you, God. We pray for your people in France, your, your, your followers. We pray that you would empower them to serve and love their community even as they grieve. We, we pray that you would give them opportunities to speak about the hope we have in you, to, to show mercy and kindness to people, that you would be lifted up in the love of your people. God, we we pray for those who are made afraid by this. Maybe they they weren't directly affected, but it it brings up all sorts of fears, all all sorts of of connections to things that have gone on in their past. And we pray for your comfort and peace for them. And God, we even pray for those who planned and and carried out these evil deeds. God, these, these are evil things. 
but we know that you are the only one just enough and the only one merciful enough to handle how to respond when these things happen. God, this is in your hands to bring about what is right, and we know that we have been shown mercy by you. And so we pray for those who plan this, that they might be brought to repentance, those, those communities and people who, who seek to harm others, that you would bring them to yourself and that they would know your peace. God, we do pray for all of the places in the world. This is a high-profile situation, uh, and so we see it, but there are lots of places in the world where this is happening and we don't see it. And so we pray for your peace to reign in our world. And God, we pray closer to home. Uh, there is all sorts of suffering here, even in this room and in this community. And we pray that in the midst of that, we would find hope in looking to you, Jesus, the one who is good and on the throne, the lo one who loved us enough to lay down his life. And because of that, we trust you, God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.